What's up, everybody? Welcome to Giraffe Chaff. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me, as per usual, Ben Fisher. What's up, dude? Not too much. I'm doing everything in my power to resist making a Streets of Nuka Pena spoiler joke right now. I'm not going to do it because <laughs> I guess they might give us some spoilers tomorrow anyway. I guess yesterday, now, now that people are listening to this. Uh, yeah. I don't even... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we still have so much more to talk about with Kamigawa. I, we haven't even begun to crack open this set yet, and we're already getting hype for the next one. I don't know. I, I, while I do enjoy seeing spoilers, look, we've got some, some good comments to talk about today. Yes, we do. But before we do that, we have our usual housekeeping. Check out the Discord if you haven't already. It's the best place to be to interact with us outside of the show, as well as the rest of the Traficionado community. We have some really awesome conversations over there, especially with a new set like this and people kind of figuring out some cool interactions and different ways to put the cards together, different combos to play out, different awesome limited uh, situations that people are running into. So check that out if you're not already in the Discord. Link to that is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so by checking out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod. Huge, huge thanks to all of our patrons who continue to support us each and every week. Perks over there include things like stickers, show notes, unedited recordings of the show with some pre- and post-show banter, and access to our Draft Chaff Hero cards signed by Ben and I and sent right to your door. And again, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash pod. Now, I think this month as well, we are going to be opening up that uh, channel that we have kind of hinted at or discussed a few times here on the show in the last couple of weeks with our office hours. And so we'll, we'll pick a day this month to kind of just set aside an hour to hang out in our discord so certain uh tiers of the patreon will have access to that channel and can come hang out with us while answer questions walk through drafts any of that kind of stuff i'm starting to narrow down on our draft chaff hero for this set i have a few in mind and it's gonna be a good one let's just say that all right onto our cracker draft type thing ben what do you got for us today well before we do i want to mention something weird going on with our packs in general something that we were surprised to learn that no one had really mentioned before there was some chatter in our discord about this when i noticed it sometimes there's four uncommons in kamigawa packs and apparently it has something to do with whether or not you have a saga in the pack so let me get this straight it, if you have an uncommon saga one of the commons is replaced with an additional uncommon that is a non-saga? It's it's sort of unclear what the distribution is. It seems like there is a dedicated slot for sagas in the pack. And if the saga that you happen to have in that pack is an uncommon, it takes the slot of a common. That doesn't include sagas at rare. Like you can get an uncommon and a rare saga in the same pack. But it seems like every pack, now that we've paid attention to it, it seems like every pack that has an uncommon saga has four uncommons in it. Because I have yet to see a pack that has, say, two rares, one of them being a saga. I don't think I've seen that at all yet. I think I would I remember that. And given the number of drafts I've been doing, I'd expect to have come across it by now. Then again, we did just notice this uncommon thing, and we haven't heard much talk about it. If you've seen something like this, let us know in the Discord. Like, comment, and subscribe if you have opened up a pack with... <laughs> Zach's making a face at me with, with four <laughs> commons. Come, never mind. Let's move on. Cracker draft type thing for today. I've got an interesting one for you. I've got a pack one, pick six 
That means I've got five cards so far. I first picked a Life of Toshiro Umezawa, an awesome card. I followed up with Goshintai of Hidden Cruelty. Then I took Michiko's Reign of Truth, Kami of Terrible Secrets, and Noriko Yamazaki the Poet. So I've got a little bit of a black-white split here and some strong uncommons in both colors. Michiko's Reign of Truth is so good as an uncommon artifact and enchantment payoff, although it tends to slot really naturally into the white enchantress decks. Life of Toshiro is just one of the best turn two plays in the format. When you play a one mana one one or really a two mana two one or anything with one toughness at all, when you get that sniped by Toshiro and then you look at your hand and you have another one toughness creature you're planning on playing next turn, it just looks embarrassing. Just absolutely great card. Comedy of Terrible Secrets, probably the worst card I've picked so far. I've also got the Goshintai, the Black Shrine. Something to note here, the pack itself does have another shrine in it, but it's not exactly the one I was hoping to see. So starting from the end, uh, we've got a Scoured Barrens. Honestly, <laughs> you could just take the Scoured Barrens here, right? Black-White Gainland, kind of solidify myself in Black-White. It's also a good sign that nobody else wants it. Yeah, I mean, we're just about midway through the pack here, and... Yeah, it's pretty solid for you. You're not likely to get that back, I don't think, if you pass it here. Yeah, seems pretty solid. It's actually, a, I think it's a fine pickup here if there's nothing else left. I think I'd still take like a solid card in your colors over it, but I'm happy to take this at this point. The Abzan Shrines deck can be usually base green, but when you have sometimes these black-white decks, their fixing is a little more limited. So Scoured Barons would be a nice pickup here. Next up, Regent's Authority. Have not been impressed with this one. Usually these one mana tricks are solid, but this set, it's just not really about the tricks. Next up, another Kami of Terrible Secrets. I'm a sucker for this card. I like it a lot, but I don't have any artifacts yet. Uh, it's looking like this is going to be a more of an Abzan, maybe even Black-White Enchantress. So probably not taking this here. I'm definitely taking Scoured Barons over it. Yeah, this is actually a type of card that will kind of be a gotcha for me a lot of times. When I haven't really drafted a, a format quite a lot yet, I'll see a card like this see the colors that I have and be like, oh, this is a black-white card. Mm. And so I should just take it because this is the deck that it fits in. When really at this point in the draft, you're not super sold on being black-white. You could easily end up something else, some other color if white starts getting cut really hard or, I mean, even black for that matter. And like you said, without any artifacts, the, the Kami of Hidden Secrets is really not getting where you want it to be. So I think the discipline pick here is to not take the Kami, though... At some point, if you end up in the traditional black-white deck with a lot of artifacts, a lot of enchantments, you will be happy to pick up a second copy of this card. I think you're better off passing it here. Black's artifacts don't go nearly as deep as blue and reds. I found that, you know, well, the old virus beetle, which we'll be talking quite a bit about today, is kind of the best one to have in this deck. But sometimes you'll draft black-white and hope to have this this two-color synergy, these one artifact, one enchantment synergy going, and you look down at your distribution and see, oh, I've got 10 enchantments and three artifacts. Like, whoops, how'd that happen? Right. Yeah, and then you're just kind of sad for the rest of the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next up, Kami of Industry. Like this card still, 3-6 is pretty beefy, and you can do some fun things. I've liked this with the Unstoppable Ogre, bringing back the 4-1 that makes a creature can't block. I've actually seen some mono red decks going around that have apparently been performing pretty well. Cool strategy to use in limited. Yeah, I mean, not, not what you want here, but it's pretty solid. Next up, Intercessor's Arrest. This is the pacifism effect that pretty much does it all. Stops things from crewing, activating abilities, reconfiguring, attacking and blocking, all the good stuff. Good three mana white removal spell. 
Yeah, I think at this point in the draft, I would probably, without knowing the rest of the pack, I would probably take this. It's a solid removal spell in your colors, and it, it kind of feeds into the enchantment thing. So if you need the extra enchantments, it's good to have as well. So a solid pickup for this deck so far, but we'll see what else is in the pack here. Mm -hmm. This very well might be the correct pick. I'm just going to warn you now. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, Harmonious Emergence. That's the aura that you can stick on a land, the green one. It turns it into a 4-5 Vigilance. It hurts much less to go down a land when you kind of make it into a creature and then can attack with it on turn like 4, 5, 6 than it does for the red one. I think it's Crackling Emergence on, say, like turn 2 or 3. Because at that point, you know, you're, you're losing one-third of your mana, one-fourth of your mana, where you, on later turns, might be losing one-eighth of your mana, in which case that's not a big deal. I have cast this card, I think, once ever, and it wasn't super impressed. Next up, Future Sentinel. I was combing through some 17 lands data earlier, and I happened to sort by lowest to highest win rate instead of highest to lowest at one point, and I saw this one. <laughs> so not, not a great indicator for the Future Sentinel. Yeah, that says just about all you need to hear on that. Ecologist Terrarium is up next. Nice little card. I haven't loved it. It's certainly serviceable. But it's not nearly as good as the Wedding Invitation from last set. Usually in a set, we get something that looks kind of like this. It's a two-mana artifact. When it enters the battlefield, it puts you up a card in some way. This one happens to go get a land, and then you can use it to put a, a counter on a creature, which does modify it, and it does you know, help it in combat. And this is an artifact, so this does a lot of little things. And if this is how you have to fix your colors, then you know it's a necessary evil. But I'm not necessarily jamming like four of these. No, I think you're really only accepting one or two, maybe, and it really depends on your deck. I think there is absolutely a, a few homes in this format for this card, but this shell that we have so far is not one of them. If you're in Grixis Artifacts and you really need that splash, then definitely, but I prefer splashing with like the lands themselves. There's, I mean, dual lands, gain lands, and even the one that enters as uh, any of any color, right? And then you got stuff like the Tanuki and the green three-drop R you can stick on a land. There's other ways of fixing your colors in green that are better. But if you don't have access to that, you know, it's not that embarrassing to put this in your deck. Speaking of cards that are embarrassing to put in your deck, Aki Boar Paint. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. Nope. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the last of, of our commons here. There's only one uncommon left in the pack, and... Well, it's Goshintai of Boundless Vigor, the green shrine that lets you play to put counters on, as I discovered, target shrine you control. Now, usually it's going to be on this thing itself, and you're just going to grow this. It has trample, uh, and it, it's just pay one to put a counter on every turn. A fine card by itself, but when you have multiple shrines out, it starts to get kind of wacky. So, you already know what I'm going to suggest here, right? Yeah, you're going to tell me to take the shrine and go into the Obzon Enchantress sort of thing. I don't think that's a terrible idea. I mean, you're you're passing up a pretty solid removal spell for your colors, so I think the correct pick is still to take the arrest. But I like the gamble here. I mean, this Goshintai is actually decent. It's one of the better ones in my experience. And if you do manage to pick up any of the cool green cards, you I love the, uh, the, the green rare Weaver of Harmonies or something of that nature that lets you copy this effect mm, doubling up uh triggered abilities from or i think it's any abilities you get from from enchantments right yeah and you do have to pay for it twice unfortunately but it, it's still <laughs> like a nice way to get double like, speed things up with this goshintai and then obviously if you have other shrines out it's 
does a good job of that as well. I think you're probably not passing up too much to take this here. I would like to have seen the context of the rest of the draft to kind of understand whether I expect to be able to get green cards in pack three. But mm. yeah, I think it's fine. I would have taken the arrest, but I can't fault you too much for trying to go crazy with the Goshen tie. And I can't fault you for being a coward. And here we are. Wow. <laughs> wow. Look, how many times have, have you seen me play blue white decks that just arrest my opponent's stuff or blow them up? Like, that's what no, I like no, to do no. in Magic. Ar arrest is very much your kind of card. And playing obs on value is very much my kind of way to lose. <laughs> so, also fair. No, I, I did take the Goshen tie here. And I, I mean, I made this pick because I had the black Goshen tie already. And once you have multiples with the black Goshen tie, you're no longer just destroying their tokens or their, their little one ones. You're destroying X twos. And that means their three mana three twos are dying. Their four twos are dying. Their two twos are dying. Now Goshen tie of hidden cruelty gets turned online. You can kind of pop off with these shrines and, you know, if you ever pick up the white one, you really just go online. I have not ever had more than two shrines in play at the same time, but this is one of those engines that we've been talking about. A way to accrue value, kind of two for ones into the late game that you really need in order to stay afloat in this format. Yeah, I think my, like, if I could pick one deck that I need to draft before this format goes away, it's five color shrines. Like, I've got to do yeah. it. I need to do it. Yep, same. I have been sticking mostly to three color decks. I've been playing a lot of blue and green and black, whether black green or blue green base splashing the, the odd color. Uh, and then I, I'll occasionally splash for like a random rare if I open, you know, like Fable of the Mirror Breaker or something like that here or there. But most of my decks, I'd say recently have been three colors. I finally got to play with the turtle. Man, what a card. <laughs> the Colossal Sky Turtle. Yeah, that's, I mean... I got to set up the loop of Season of Renewal and Colossal Sky Turtle, where you can just keep getting them both back and getting more creatures back. Oh, man. That's awesome. Value. Yeah, Very so nice. this deck, uh, it ended up playing out pretty well. I finished 6-3 and three with it, and it did wind up as Abzan Shrines. So maybe Sweet. I'll post a, a list for that in the Discord. Yeah, I would definitely be curious to see how that turned out, just the, the actual list, because that sounds like an interesting pivot from where you were originally expecting to go. I mean, you kind of had expectations to be in this like sort of black-white Enchantress deck. So it's not too far gone from that, but it's a nice little pivot, and I, I, I'm glad that worked out for you. All right, on to our Teferi Tibble. This is our Roses and Thorns style segment where Ben and I share a high and a low from the past week. So, Ben, Teferi Tibble. Well, I can start with a pretty easy Tibble. I was actually homesick from school today. Not fun. I <laughs> kind of woke up expecting to go to school and then uh, realized in the 20 minutes following waking up that it was just not going to happen. So that, that could have been better. I also scrubbed out at the open this past weekend, gave it a bunch of tries and, you know, didn't get there, but, you know, had a good time, played some good games. And to be honest, I don't think I understood the format as much as I should have at the time. I think it really clicked for me in the past week uh, since. And I guess as of the release of this, I <laughs> hopefully understand it even more than as of recording. So I'm starting to get the hang of it. Be tossing some trophies in the trophy channel, hopefully, and, you know, Onward and upward from here, right? There's always next time. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hopefully. That that sweet payout, someday, it'll be mine, I swear. My Teferi, it was my birthday last week, so got to see my family, see some friends, had a birthday weekend shenanigans. Game day is coming up next weekend, so that's pretty cool. I think I might actually go to it. I, I think I might have a free weekend, I guess, as of this Saturday, so... It's been a long time since I've gone to a game day. Maybe I'll hit that up and try to get some some paper Kamigawa in. Nice, nice. What's up with you? Uh, so my Teferi this week is that I've actually had a fairly relaxing weekend and 
up to this point week as well. It's been a pretty stressful couple of months for me and to finally get like a really relaxing weekend in was very much needed and very restful and, and just really nice overall. My tibble this week is that I have not been drafting enough lately. I think I may have only gotten like two or three drafts of this format in so far and off the back of that Teferi I'm kind of upset about that like I probably should have done more drafting this weekend but I was just relaxing so much I didn't feel like using my brain (laughs) Um, which which happens I suppose but definitely want to kick that into overdrive a little bit this week and try to get more reps in with the format I did scrub out of one of my first drafts in the format and kind of ran out of resources to keep going so that'll be Mm. I'll have to like re-kickstart my uh my gem collection and such but then my other Tibolt is that you know Before we started recording, Ben told me that we're getting new Capenna spoilers tomorrow as of the date of this recording, so the day before the episode releases, and I'm just, I'm just not on that. Like, I'm so off the idea of getting new cards from a new set spoiled already. Firing. It really feels like we've had Kamigawa for like a few days to me at mm-hmm. least maybe that's because i haven't drafted it very much but i don't know i'm so so tired i mean the, the actual set release that isn't for like two months so i'm really tired of getting inundated with new stuff consistently it's it's getting a little bit annoying mm-hmm. and they put so much work and effort into this set and just appreciating all the little details i want some time to do that you know some time to let this set breathe and kind of let us all experience it and appreciate it for what it is. I'm still having a blast. I've seen some valid criticisms of the limited environment online. Uh, I think I saw people tweeting something along the lines of like, it's it's a bit swingy because of the impactfulness of turn one and turn two plays, such as the cheap sagas. Okiba Reckoner Raid, we're looking at you. <laughs> but uh, honestly, I, I don't even mind that. I've still been having a great time and those fast starts are, are you know, far from unrecoverable. It's not like in, in the last set where sometimes, you know, there was a, a, a turn for Helena and Lena and you just, you look at your hand and cry. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. Like I'm extremely excited for new Capenna. I really love wedge sets. Mm, Cons yeah. of Tarkir was my favorite draft environment ever. And I'm really excited to see how this compares and, and the whole idea of just like the mob sort of mafia style thing going on with new Capenna sounds really cool. Yeah. But like, let me enjoy Kamigawa because I was really excited about that too. I do hear you were a little busy playing some Commander of the Weekend. I did, yeah. Um, was that this weekend? That might have been last weekend. But uh, yeah, whatever it was. yeah, me and uh, Wolverine in the Discord jumped into some one-on-one Commander and got some reps in with a few of our decks. And it was it was a good time. Unfortunately, being sick from school meant that I missed my school's uh, Commander Club as we've been <laughs> kind of transitioning into. We started about playing Modern and then uh, the, some of the students got their own Commander decks. They're still learning the ropes. Still kind of figuring out, upgrading their pre-cons a little bit here and there. So every once in a while, it's my responsibility to come in with a fully realized Bruna deck or Selvala deck and just kind of put them back in their place a little bit. Uh, I, I'm pretty happy being like the arch enemy at the table, and it's, it's fun seeing students strategize. Like, oh well, if you if you wipe his if you can get rid of that those boots, then I'll I'll kill Bruna, and then like oh, but I'll, I can wipe the board, but then that'll leave that thing, and you have to take care of that aura for me. And uh, it's it's been a good time. I'll try again tomorrow. Nice. On to our listener question of the week, and this week our question comes from Dorgan. Dorgan asks, cuts are probably the part of the draft that I find the trickiest. How do you approach them? This is a great question. Yeah, I think you could probably ask 10 different limited players, and they'll give you 10 different responses, right? 
Yeah, I think there's a fundamental base, right? Like you generally come out, especially now that we can like build our decks while we're drafting with Arena. Mm. You typically know what your deck looks like or what the very core of your deck looks like when you get out of the draft. Now, sometimes you have... I don't know, say 43 cards, including your lands, and you've got to make like three cuts, four cuts, and and those can be difficult. A lot of the time you have too many playables. It's a problem we've had for a while. It's very rare that you don't have enough playables, but we often have too many. And I think at least since we've started doing the show and kind of working through some of this stuff ourselves more regularly you know i think ben and i both tend to approach it from a vector theory perspective where we look at cards and say like what is my deck actually trying to do what is the core of my deck trying to do what does the game look like when i'm winning what does the game look like when i'm losing and which of these cards are on the board when i'm losing and not when i'm winning (laughs) and we'll cut those and kind of go from there yeah yeah you really summed it up Honestly, vector theory has been pretty useful in this. Just looking at the cards and saying, oh, I love this card. This card is maybe good, but is it good in my deck? And that tends to be the type of card that you can cut. Of course, power level cuts are a thing too. And this also varies depending on if you're playing best of three versus best of one. Maybe you're going to start an artifact or an enchantment removal spell in best of one, but you might not want to invest in three. Maybe you're worried or something like that. Who knows? So uh, another way that I've been doing this I guess this has changed for me in the last few years because of how card quality has increased to the point where you do have an awful lot of playables. So something that I'll do is I will put cards that I think could fit my deck, but I'm hoping not to play them. I think when I first started playing, I would put them kind of in my deck list, so to speak, but I've started putting them in my sideboard. And ideally, by the end of my draft, I have exactly 40 cards ready to go in my deck. I don't have to make any edits or cuts. And that has been working out pretty well for me. That's like my literal process that I use. Sometimes I have maybe one short and that's a draft that didn't go so well. And then I, you know, look in my sideboard and see, okay, well this two mana, two one, like the little uh, enchantment uh, samurai. Sometimes you can put him in your deck, even if, you know, maybe it's not quite fitting your vector. Maybe you're, you're actually playing like a black white deck that would rather uh, have something else instead. But you know, sometimes you wind up with 42 cards and then that's a better problem to have. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way to go about it. Um, Like I said, kind of being able to build your deck while you're drafting is a pretty big asset that we have through Arena that you don't typically get in paper drafts. Take advantage of that, cutting cards during your draft or, or doing that sort of thing where you take cards and you're like, this could fit my deck, but it might not. Let's just throw it in the sideboard for now and go about the rest of the draft as if I don't have that card and see what else I come up with. And then maybe it ends up getting slotted in over something else. But let's get into our main topic. I have been excited for this one for a while. Some people that follow us on Twitter might already have, have a bit of a spoiler as to what I'm going to, to get into, but Limited has changed a little bit recently, and I've been thinking about a new way to look at it. This set, Kamigawa in particular, has played out in some interesting ways. I've, I've swung around pretty wildly on my opinions on different archetypes and vectors in the last just few weeks since release alone. And while we're starting to see some significant data, the format definitely isn't quite solved yet. One thing I've noticed in this set, especially is that, you know, the the classical question, is this a good card, is no longer a very productive or useful question to be asking. Most of these cards are pretty good. As we said earlier, we have an influx of playables. Instead, I found it much more productive to ask the question, when is this card at its best? So consider Fade into Antiquity, right? That is the two and a green sorcery, XL target artifact or enchantment. In many sets, you could not pay me enough to put this in my main deck, but in this set, It's pretty solid, 
And I'm happy with, you know, one, two, potentially even three, depending on my, my other removal suite. These, you know, more modern sets seem to operate on a lot of sliders with the power and complexity of these certain archetypal cards ramped up or down for certain draft environments. So Return to Nature, the one we had in Midnight Hunt, that was one of the green instant exile target card from a graveyard or I think it was Destroy Artifact or Destroy Enchantment. Maybe it was Exile, any of them. Nah, well, same idea, but two mana and instant speed versus three mana and sorcery speed and not affecting the graveyard. Return to Nature would probably have been one of the top green commons in this set. I mean, it had to be made worse here for balance's sake. Yeah, it's interesting to see cards like that. And and like you said, we're, we're kind of seeing this theme with more contemporary magic sets where we have these sort of sliders. And, and we I think we used to approach evaluating cards, old cards, within the context of a new set by using old sort of grades for that card as a baseline and then kind of adjusting from there. And I think that's still valuable, but I have found that actually approaching every single set with just completely fresh eyes and not using old contexts to justify a rating for a card in a current context has been helpful. Mm. Like you said, a card like Fade into Antiquity compared to something like Return to Nature, we would have thought, oh gosh, this card's like unplayable. Like why would you ever put mm -hmm. this in your deck? Maybe it's a sideboard card, but beyond that, like you don't want this in your main deck. Here it's just very solid removal. Like you just want that in your deck, in almost every deck that can cast it. And you're going to be pretty happy to pick up one or two of them. Whereas you never would have really considered that if you were looking at it from the lens of an old context or an old set. So I kind of like trying to approach all of these cards that we've seen before when you're looking at a new set completely fresh and looking at the context of the set that it's in more so than just using a baseline to start out. Yeah. I actually figured out that Fade into Antiquity was good in a kind of roundabout, embarrassing way. Uh, I got demolished by a Jingataxius, which I had originally thought was like maybe beatable. <laughs> I, I have now learned better because I noticed that it didn't say creature. It doesn't counter the first creature spell you cast each turn, whereas it does counter the first uh, artifact enchantment, instant sorcery, I believe, all, all the other good ones. And of course, it copies it for its controller. But then I looked a little more carefully at creatures in this set, and nearly all of the relevant creature plays are artifacts or enchantments, thanks to sagas and shrines and reconfigure and like the colorless artifacts. Pretty much everything that mattered was one of those, and that made me realize that Fade was much likely better than I had expected, as it was at its best when lots of artifacts and enchantments are present in the set. Yeah, not only is it at its best when, when there are a lot of artifacts and enchantments, but also when those artifacts and enchantments are the cards you'd prefer to be playing over those that aren't, right? If if mm -hmm. they just loaded a bunch of artifacts and enchantments in a set, but then like most of them are mediocre and you didn't really care to play them. We've seen that with like certain equipment oriented sets that like the equipment didn't quite get there and you'd rather not play them. A card like Fade into Antiquity isn't going to be great. But here, like you said, the, the artifacts and enchantments are the best cards in the set. Like you just are playing those by nature of them already being great cards, the synergies available to you in the set. And so fade goes up like crazy in value. So I recommend reevaluating cards in this set with this approach in mind, not asking whether or not it's good, but asking when is it at its best. So I went through and I, I figured out a few cases here, uh, case studies for us to investigate. Imperial Oath, that's the five and a white sorcery, make three, two, two vigilant samurai and scry three. So this is at its best when creatures in the format are relatively small and this is functionally a three for one when it's when it's these three actual real bodies uh, that can, you know, attack, block, trade. And when white decks can make it to six lands, 
and when they want to make plays past turn six to give the scry value. Sometimes white decks in some formats never want to drop their sixth land, or they might not want the game to continue past turn six. But in this set, white decks are very capable of that thanks to some of the enchantment synergies, especially paired with green. So I found Imperial Oath to be very playable in this format because it meets those criteria. Creatures are relatively small. A 2-2 can be a real thing on the board, especially with Vigilance. White decks can make it up to six lands, and uh, they do want to play past turn six. Yeah, and we've seen that actually supported. We talked about this last week. We've seen that supported through 17 lands data. Imperial Oath is in the top 10 commons uh, games played win rate. And, you know, that that kind of is showing us some more um, quantitative, you know, sort of analysis or backup for this sort of intuition that we're talking about here. Here was a, a bit of a stumbling block for me. Unstoppable Ogre. When I first saw this card, I thought it was junk. <laughs> I thought this was going to be trash and not very playable. But you know what? Now I'm thinking about when it's at its best. I think it's at its best when there's relatively few ways to make 1-1 one, one tokens. There's a handful in this set, right? But there's not a ton. It's not like a, a, an entire archetype's theme or anything. And when it ensures that a big chunk of damage is going to get through... And when it will trade approximately evenly on mana. I mean, it's a three mana creature. If this trades for a one mana investment, maybe it wasn't the best. But as long as you're trading this thing essentially for like a two to four mana play and maybe three or four damage, I think you've kind of gotten your mana's worth and your card's worth out of it, right? Yeah, it seems to me to be the the areas that I've seen this card come down against me. And I'm like, oh, crap. Like they're, they're actually getting away with something here is exactly these criteria. Right, I don't have mm -hmm. any one ones. All the creatures that I have, I don't really want to block with that block that thing with. They're gonna make one of my relevant creatures un un unable to block. And then from a mana perspective, you know, you're trading even or even sometimes getting up on mana with this thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like that's exactly when I've seen it be good against me. It's sometimes useful to use extreme case analysis here too, right? Unstoppable ogre is at its very best when your opponent is at one life and they have one blocker and you have a, like a 3-3 three, three or something, right? Then it is at its absolute best. It was the game-winning card. I mean, it's not usually going to be that good, but when you can get it to be somewhat good, then, you know, it's pretty solid. And it's also worth mentioning, like, so we know when it's at its very best. How often is that the only card that will get us to victory in that situation? I mean, if your opponent's at one with one blocker, you could basically play any creatures and you'll be good to go. Right. So it's, yeah. it's not that this card is like it has a very niche, very best uh, situation. So that's also something to consider mm -hmm. in terms of like how good it actually is. We, we've talked about this in roundabout ways in terms of like how high the ceiling is on a card or how low the floor yeah. is. Yeah. And you can kind of look at that through extreme case analysis in that way where if the very best or very worst situations of a card are very rarely going to happen, then it doesn't actually matter how great they are or how bad they are in those situations. Mm -hmm. You can also look at the opposite extreme. This card is at its worst when your opponent has like 10 one ones. <laughs> oh <laughs> so. yeah, yeah, it's just forget it. Don't even play it. Mm -hmm. Now, interesting is that this card's best is I don't think as good as Imperial Oath's best. I think Imperial Oath is like, you know, just better rate, a more impactful play. It kind of helps solidify your state. Uh, Unstoppable Ogre, it has, it has a little more setup cost than that. Yeah, and then, like I said, it also, you know, you can take into consideration how often you can hit that best state, and Imperial Oath is going to hit that far more frequently than Unstoppable Ogre is. Here's one that's even more niche, Planar Incision. That's the uh, the Flicker. <laughs> I think I've seen this cast maybe once, but it's at its best when you have, like, a ton of creatures, many of which have strong ETB triggers, 
And maybe if your opponent has like removal spells, again, the extreme case in this is not necessarily a setup, but like a timing. The, ex the extreme good for this is when your opponent is attempting to remove one of your creatures that has a strong ETB effect. So <laughs> it sounds like your opponent might already be in a bit of a corner case here if they're doing that. Then you get to planar incision it, flicker the thing, blank the removal spell, get the ETB effect again. Maybe even flipping a, a, a flipped saga back over and getting all that stuff back. So this one is the most niche of all out of these three that we've mentioned. Um, takes an awful lot of setup and awful lot of particular circumstances. And if you put this in your deck, on average, this scenario doesn't come up that often. Yeah, it also relies a lot on your opponent having very specific cards, which mm -hmm. limits how frequently it's good as well. All right, here's one for the listener. When is suit up at its best? That's the two and a blue instant target creature or vehicle has base power and toughness four or five until in a turn it like animates the vehicle too uh and draw a card Here, here's a challenge for the listener when is this card at its best uh first person to put a good answer in the discord i will send you an arena code sounds good challenge accepted not to, oh not you by can't me. accept the no, challenge no not by me not by me but i imagine You're our like... listeners will accept that challenge I hear Zach just typing furiously on his keyboard. <laughs> Gonna beat all those listeners to it. With my two-day head start. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I want to use this framework to unpack two creatures in this set. Two creatures that look pretty simple, but have been putting up some of the best statistics in the set so far. Virus Beetle and Spirited Companion. Uh, a tale of two commons, if you will. So first of all, let's refresh our memory on what these cards actually are. Right, so Virus Beetle is one in a black for a 1-1 artifact creature insect at common. When it enters the battlefield, each opponent discards a card. And Spirited Companion is the white counterpart to this. Rather than your opponent discarding a card, you draw a card. But it's still a 2-mana 1-1, and it's in white. And, and it's an enchantment. First of all, let's just appreciate the flavor of this. It's a bug in the system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and then Spirited Companion is more of a name pun than anything else, but... I mean, that little pup obviously is playing with spirits, so pretty funny. So these are two pretty similar cards in theory, right? They're both two mana ones that, quote-unquote, put you up a card. But they don't really do it in the same way. The beetle makes your opponent discard a card from their hand, where companion makes you draw. These two effects are not nearly as equivalent as they might seem at first glance. So the big question to, so the big question to analyze these two, when is each of these at their best? So the puppy gains you resources, whereas the bug denies your opponent a resource. One draws a random card from your library, while the other removes, presumably, the worst card from your opponent's hand. So first of all, on turn two, both the Virus Beetle and the Spirited Companion are just solid plays. But while both players are in their building phase, I would argue that the Beetle is actually better. I believe that denying your opponent that resource in the early game is better than gaining yourself a resource in the early game. You might make them discard their fourth land and then they get stuck at three for the rest of the game. Or maybe they discard their four drop only to top deck lands for the rest of the game. Beetle leads to the net reduction of resources for your opponent, which can really punish the early game because that's the time when you try to build your engines and then the set especially, when you try to get everything online. You kind of provide this, uh, this speed bump, if you will. Yeah, we've seen this pretty regularly in sort of just the flow of gameplay with magic in that sort of the early game and, and we've seen this like if, if there are a lot of this is an argument for this format as well if there are a lot of good early plays turn one turn two plays the format tends to be very fast if you can build really quickly the game will end much quicker 
If you can't build very quickly, then you'll hit those mid to late game sort of scenarios. And then when you hit those mid, mid to late game scenarios, you end up in an attrition war, which is where you kind of need to figure out between you and your opponent who can pick up more resources than the other. You run out of gas, who can get more of it before the other? This beetle kind of gets a head start on running your opponent out of gas faster. And maybe you happen to force them to discard the one card that they would have needed to stop your game plan. Now, conversely, in the mid to late game, I think gaining yourself the card is more important. The puppy would be better. In this set, that might mean digging to find the pieces of your engine that you don't have yet, especially for whatever your vector happens to be. Maybe in black white, it's digging to find your payoff or in the Bant Enchantress type of decks, it's finding a Michiko's Reign or something to, to close the game out. Uh, this could be the difference between finding your season of renewal and not is so huge. And plus this can dig for, you know, key removal spells to deal with your opponent's engine before it comes online. Maybe find your bomb, find the artifact or enchantment removal spell, the niche card, that type of thing that helps you remain functional into the mid to late game. So I had this hypothesis in my head. Now, I actually, in, in kind of researching this article, I found that Sam Black actually had the same hypothesis that I did from an article from about a year ago, which, <laughs> gotta admit, I felt pretty proud of myself for that one, coming up with something that, that you know, one of the most storied writers in, in modern magic came up with. So uh, I highly recommend checking out the article on Star City Games, Elvish Visionary versus Elder Fang Disciple, The Nature of Card Advantage. Definitely give that a read, uh, especially if you're interested in, in this kind of topic. Uh, and we'll a link lot that of in thoughts, the episode description. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of his thoughts um, are, are very similar to, to mine on this topic. So I wanted to investigate, I guess, both of our hypotheses. Uh, this hypothesis that Virus Beetle would be a bit better in the early game and Spirited Companion would be a bit better in the late game. And the way that I think I can interpret the 17 lands data to do this properly, Hulu, Sirkovitz, just roast me in the Discord if this is all wrong. But... I feel as though I can look and expect to see that Virus Beetle will have a higher opening hand win rate than Companion, and that Companion would have a higher win rate when drawn turn one or later than the Beetle. So I wanted to go and, you know, test my hypothesis. I checked the data, and I found that I was spot on. This is one of our least draft chaffy episodes ever, but it's really cool to be able to actually dive into stuff like this in in such a such an easy kind of approachable way right 17 lands kind of enables us to get really granular data with tons and tons of samples here right our sample size is massive we have like hundreds of thousands of games and that just leads to more accurate data so it's really cool to be able to dig into this mm -hmm. so looking at sorting for opening hand win rate we actually find that virus beetle is number two in the set as far as commons just behind okiba reckoner raid Virus Beetle is at 61.2% opening hand win rate, where Spirited Companion is about a percentage point behind at 60.1%. Of course, these are both great things to have in your opening hand, but I think this does kind of confirm my hypothesis. I mean, it's only a percentage point apart, so I'm not going to say, like, you know, start slamming your Virus Beetle before your Spirited Companion every single black-white deck. But, you know, this this does seem to confirm my hypothesis that Virus Beetle is better in the early game to deny your opponent resources. And then looking at... The game's drawn win rates, we find Spirited Companion is number fourth among commons, sitting at 60.1. And you know, actually, Imperial Oath is up higher at the very top at 63.0, followed by Twisted Embrace and, funnily enough, Suit Up. Right. So I, I think it's worth mentioning, too, before we get too much further into this, that we're not trying to say that Spirited Companion is a bad turn two play, right? We're, we're kind <laughs> of like, all. we're kind of pulling hairs in terms of, of 
trying to find very minute benefits to playing one early over the other. And really, we're just looking at like, when are these two cards at their absolute best? And actually, I mean, it's interesting. Spirited Companion has the same opening hand win rate as it does games uh, games drawn win rate, right? So mm-hmm. it just seems to be good across the board. Like, it doesn't matter when you're playing it, it's going to do its thing. And I think that's pretty indicative of card draw in general. I mean, it's really never a bad thing to draw an extra card. And that's that's kind of intriguing to see, but it's not always great to make your opponent discard. And so you can kind of see that fall off with the Virus Beetle later in the game. Yeah, that's the thing. Virus Beetle didn't even crack the top 10. It was actually 18th for a game's drawn win rate, which, you know, is still up there for commons. Still a respectable win rate of 58.7. But this also kind of makes sense. Hand sizes aren't infinite, right? This set has a ton of two-for-ones, but not many of them involve raw card advantage outside of blue. So eventually there comes a point where your opponent just doesn't have any cards in their hand anymore. In fact, I recommend not sandbagging lands unless you have a very, very good reason to do so because you might just get hit by a virus beetle and then that makes your season of renewal worse because then you can only do it for three and then if you bring back a five drop, oh, maybe you forgot to play your land so you can't, you have to play a four drop instead. It's a whole thing, right? Uh, Kind of a side note about the blue card advantage spells. Well, raw card advantage is great in this set as it can find your two for ones. Uh, It's not unbeatable. I, I tend to find that if my opponent goes like thirst for knowledge or something and, and draws three, discards one, I'm not always that upset because it seems like their hand tends to melt back down to a normal late game size relatively quickly. They might like draw two lands and like a three mana three three. And in this format, that doesn't do a ton. Uh, I will say Behold the Unspeakable is just nuts though <laughs> because it says draw four on it. Uh, when you make that work and then when you can recur it, like, man, all right, that, that one's a step above. But the other blue card advantage, you know, it's, it's, it's there, but it's beatable. So we know when these cards are at their best. The beetle in the early game to deny your opponent a resource. The spirited companion in the mid game to you know, propel your engine onward. But what about specifically where for each of them? So obviously it depends where you are in the draft and what best suits your vector. I would answer this one by saying wherever you're able to make best use of the resulting 1-1 body. So for example, if you're playing an aggressive black, red, blue artifact strategy, the virus beetle, clearly better, right? If these creatures didn't have color, if they just, you know, were two generic mana each, you would want, you'd still want the virus beetle uh, in the black red artifact synergy decks because you want to deny your opponent resources and end the game quickly. Uh, these decks tend to have win cons like uh, Oni Cult Anvil or ninjas that rely on getting in quick damage, draining your opponent out. Uh, and you likely have other artifact synergies as well, such as you know sacking the the bug to the anvil or to a voltage surge or bouncing it back to your hand with a ninja or something like that. Uh, and this one is denying your opponent the resources to interact with your aggressive game plan. It's also worth mentioning too, right? Like another big difference between the two and when you'd like to see one of them played is really comes down to ignoring color, like Ben was kind of getting at. Do you need artifacts or do you need enchantments? And I think that's that's an interesting mm-hmm. dichotomy they gave us with these two. I mean, if they had both been enchantments or both been artifacts, this would have been a much less interesting conversation. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. when you, when you, you have to kind of break down, of course there's a color differential, but... You have to break down like from a synergy perspective because this set relies so heavily on these these synergies. It's really difficult to get away from them. You really need to just pare down like, do I need artifacts or do I need enchantments? Yeah, so if you're playing one of those Abzan enchantress strategies, the companion's clearly better because you want to continue to pile on sagas and these recursion cards like Season of Renewal, uh, Geothermal Kami to, to pick it up. Skyblessed Samurai takes advantage of having this enchantment sitting on the board. 
unlike the Beetle, this one helps you find the pieces that you need to continue to assemble this engine and kind of drag the game out a little more and eventually outvalue your opponent. So a, a kind of weird side note, because this might seem to go against one of the core aggressive tenants that is you don't care how many cards your opponent has left in their hand when they die. That tends to apply a little more for constructed. In limited, this type of making an opponent discard a card is much more useful than it is in, in constructed, where you know the decks are so streamlined and they can mulligan pretty reliably. We found in recent years that you tend to just not want to mulligan very much at all ever <laughs> in limited. Even though we have the mulligan rule and it's it's pretty solid, I, I found that you tend to want as many cards as you can get. So a mix of both is also useful. There's a lot of ways to pick up creatures in this set, meaning that sometimes your opponent will have a real card in their hand later than you might expect. So, for example, if they ninja or geothermal kami or season of renewal a card back to their hand, then maybe your top decked virus beetle isn't the worst thing in the world. But, you know, the spirited companion is also good in the early game because maybe they played a two mana two one and you just want to get something down to trade with it. All of this is heavily context dependent, of course. But honestly, if you want a good deck, just jam three of each and put in some Kami of Terrible Secrets, Imperial Oaths, Removal Spells. Uh, you got a deck right there. Yeah, definitely. I think it's actually, you know, it, it would be a pretty solid turn four play to just be like Virus Beetle Companion jam with whatever oh, yeah. you already have on the board. Like you're, you're kind of up two cards in card advantage there in a weird way. And, you know, turn four, your opponents probably have played out a few cards. So they have like some solid late game cards in their hand, most likely. And. And then it's also worth mentioning that cards like the Virus Beetle do go up in value and do get much better in sets where you have the ability to get more information out of your opponent's hand. So cards, like when there's a lot of good bounce, when there's a lot of good like thought seize style of effects where you get to see your opponent's hand, any of those sorts of situations bring a card like this up because you have more information to play with. You know when it's better to make your opponent discard a card and when it's not. Overall, pack one, pick one. If I'm forced to pick between the Companion and the Virus Beetle, I'm probably taking the Companion. Kind of depends on my mood. But to kind of sum all this up, they're best when... But to kind of sum all this up, the Virus Beetle is at its best when you want an aggressive strategy, like the Artifact one, where you want to deny your opponent the resources they might need to disrupt your aggressive game plan. The Companion is at its best when you want to propel yourself into the mid to late game, fuel your own engine, and kind of outlast your opponent. Now, of course, the bodies can both be made of use in these two decks in different ways. These vectors have different ways of using artifacts and enchantments. Or if you're in black-white, both. But overall, both are great cards. Like, we're talking about win percentages around 60%. Like, this is, these are two good little 1-1s. One -ones. So, uh, I, given the chance, I don't mind starting a draft with either a, uh, a bug or a puppy. Well, that does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening and sticking it out with us. Once again, if you are interested and aren't already in it, definitely check out our Discord. We do love to see new people pop into there. The link to that is in our episode description as well as on our Twitter page. Again, if you want to support us directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod. Another way to support us is to rate the show, give us um, reviews and such on whatever platform you happen to be watching or listening to the show, and share it with your friends. More listeners, more aficionados, always a good thing for us and the rest of the community as well. So those are the ways you can support us. If you want to reach out to us on social media, you can find us on Twitter. Ben is at Betafish1. I am at Zach E. Hackett, and the show is at DraftChaffPod. Thanks, folks, and we'll catch you next week. See ya. So a few things that are, you know, tangentially relevant to this set... 
Wait, what's that card called? Hold on. It's the. Uh... So a few things that are tangentially relevant to this set. I've been looking at Blossom Prancer a lot. Yeah, Even though I'm, I'm still surprised. mad. I'm still mad about this card. I was sorting through my collection the other day, trying to organize a bit, and I realized I had a foil one. And I just stared at it, and I was like, wow. This is really nice. <laughs> you know, yeah, I wish it said Elk. And maybe in, in our personal playgroups, I might request that I can just, like, take a copy and, like, Sharpie over Spirit and put Elk, you know, just, just, just for the sake of having it. But uh, it, it reminded me of just kind of the, the nice aesthetics uh, of this card. And I realized when I was in Target the other day, I saw something that caught my eye. So hold on. Check this out. That's sick. So what Ben is showing me right now is a Lego bonsai... Well, maybe it's not actually a bonsai tree, but it it basically looks like a bonsai kind of um, uh, blossom tree. It looks very much like like Blossom Prancer. Yeah, basically spot on. Uh, if you're a fan of Legos out there, I cannot recommend this like botanical series enough. They are so cool. <laughs> like, uh, if you look very very carefully, the little petals are actually frogs. Oh wow! Yeah, just love it. Uh, highly recommend a very good piece of apartment decor and honestly pretty fun to build. Now, I actually built this while watching uh, an anime movie that I hadn't seen before, um, which I guess also kind of relevant to the set given the, the anime influence in, in an awful lot of this stuff. Uh, I watched Paprika by Satoshi Khan. And Zach, I think you would love this movie. It inspired Inception. And oh. uh, in fact... Chris Nolan took direct scenes from this movie from uh, Paprika and put them into Inception. And I would argue that Paprika blows Inception out of the water. I was so impressed. And to be honest, I started like I was I was originally just kind of building this bonsai tree and putting on Paprika in the background to watch. By like five minutes in, I had just kind of paused the Legos and was just staring at this uh, fascinating movie. Highly recommend uh, anyone else out there that, that that is a fan of this. Uh, hit me up in the Discord. I need to unpack this stuff because it's nuts. I'll add it to my backlog. That sounds really cool. A lot of the reason I like Inception is obviously the story just in general is really cool. But there were some really crazy cinema cinematography skills and like uh, camera work that that they did in that film that makes it really re- incredible. You know, like the scene where they where they're um, in the they're they're doing one of the last drops. It's when they're doing all the drops like sequentially at the end. Yeah, yeah. And there's a scene in the um, hotel setting where Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character and I think some of the security guards are fighting in a hallway, and the gravity gets all whacked, like messed up, and and the room starts spinning, and you can see like mm. the gravity. They literally spun a room around, like a set that they built yeah. around the yeah. actors. It's incredible. That's awesome. Uh, I gotta say, parts of that taken from Paprika. Nice. Yeah, I'll definitely add it to my backlog.